This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adult spinal deformity from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Adult spinal deformity is defined as a deformity of the spine in either the coronal or sagittal plane. Coronal plane imbalance is defined as lateral deviation of the normal vertical line of the spine greater than 10 degrees. Sagittal plane imbalance is defined as radiographic sagittal imbalance of greater than 5 centimeters. With respect to the epidemiology of adult spinal deformity, as far as the demographics, the mean age is 60 years old, and males and females are equally affected. With respect to the location, idiopathic scoliosis is more common in the thoracic spine, and degenerative scoliosis occurs more commonly in the lumbar spine. With respect to the pathoanatomy, degenerative scoliosis results from the asymmetric degeneration of disc space and or facet joints in the spine, and it may occur in the coronal plane that is scoliosis or the sagittal plane that is kyphosis slash lordosis. Factors contributing to loss of sagittal plane balance includes osteoporosis, pre-existing scoliosis, iatrogenic instability, and degenerative disc disease. With respect to prognosis of adult spinal deformity, there is a worse prognosis if symptoms progress to the side of curve convexity. As far as prognosis of sagittal plane imbalance, sagittal plane balance is the most reliable predictor of clinical symptoms in adults with spinal deformity. With respect to progression of adult spinal deformity, it depends on the curve type, so thoracic curves tend to progress more, then lumbar, then thoracolumbar, then double major curves. Right thoracic curves tend to progress 1 degree per year, Right lumbar curves tend to progress 0.5 degrees per year, and thoracolumbar curves tend to progress 0.25 degrees per year. Progression also depends on the curve magnitude, so curves less than 30 degrees rarely progress, and curves greater than 50 degrees commonly progress. As far as additional risk factors for progression, there is an increased risk when the intercrestal line is below L4, L5. There is also an increased risk when pre-existing rotational changes exist. Moving on to the classification of adult spinal deformity, coronal deformity can be broken down into idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity and degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity. With respect to the idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity, this is the result of untreated adolescent idiopathic scoliosis in the adult. Degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity is defined as a progressive deformity in the adult caused by degenerative changes, iatrogenic reasons, paralysis, or it can be post-traumatic in nature. Now, let's go over the difference between idiopathic or residual and degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity. Adult spinal deformity with respect to curve pattern, vertebral segments, curve location, and curve magnitude. With respect to curve pattern, idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity follows classic curve patterns, while degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity lacks the classic curve patterns. With respect to vertebral segments, idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity involves more vertebral segments, while degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity involves fewer vertebral segments. With respect to curved location, idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity is typically located in the thoracic spine, while degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity is confined to the lumbar spine. With respect to curved magnitude, idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity tends to have larger curves, while degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity tends to have a smaller curve magnitude. With respect to the presentation of adult spinal deformity, patients may exhibit symptoms of low back pain in 40 to 90% of cases, neurogenic claudication, 
or radicular leg pain and weakness. With respect to low back pain, remember this is the most common symptom and can be caused by spondylosis, micro-slash-macro instability, and discogenic pain, and keep in mind that low back pain in the setting of adult spinal deformity is more severe and recurrent than in the general population. With respect to neurogenic claudication, this is defined as pain in the lower extremities and buttocks, but unlike classic claudication, patients with scoliosis plus stenosis do not obtain relief with sitting-slash-forward flexion. Again, in the setting of an adult spinal deformity, unlike classic claudication, patients with scoliosis plus stenosis do not obtain relief with sitting-slash-forward flexion. Neurogenic claudication is caused by spinal stenosis, where the stenosis is located on the concave side of the curve. With respect to radicular leg pain and weakness, this is caused by foraminal and lateral recess stenosis. Keep in mind that stenosis is worse in the concavity of the deformity where there is vertebral body rotation and translation. On physical exam in these patients, you may find deformity with thoracic prominences seen with forward bending, and you may also find muscle weakness. With respect to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a full-length, long, 36-inch cassette standing scoliosis x-rays in the coronal, which is the AP radiograph, and the sagittal plane, which is the lateral radiograph, with right and left bending films. Bending films help assess curve flexibility and the possibility of correction with surgical intervention. With respect to measurements, on the AP radiograph, you have your Cobb angle, and the coronal balance, which you can measure using the C7 plumb line and the center sacral vertical line. Measurements on the lateral radiograph include sagittal balance and pelvic incidence. Sagittal balance is measured using the C7 plumb line, and pelvic incidence is calculated as the sacral slope plus the pelvic tilt. A CT scan will help identify bony deformity, such as facet arthrosis. CT myelogram is the most useful for assessing stenosis and bony anatomy as rotation makes interpretation of the MRI difficult. Keep in mind that with a CT myelogram, you may have a better appreciation of bony anatomy and rotational deformity than MRI. Speaking of MRI, this is indicated when there is lower extremity pain present, and this can identify central canal stenosis, facet hypertrophy, pedicular enlargement, foraminal encroachment, and disc degeneration. A DEXA scan is important to determine bone density for surgical planning. Treatment of adult spinal deformity can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation with non-operative modalities, and this is indicated for coronal curves less than 30 degrees, which rarely progress. Modalities of non-operative management include oral medications, with things like NSAIDs or tricyclic antidepressants that can help with sleep disturbance. Other modalities include physical therapy, which will specifically include core strengthening, walking, cycling, swimming, and selected weightlifting. Other non-operative modalities include corticosteroid injections and nerve root blocks, which can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. Finally, bracing may slow the progression of the deformity and increase comfort. Operative options include surgical curve correction with instrumented fusion. General indications include curves greater than 50 degrees, sagittal imbalance, curve progression, intractable back pain or radicular pain that has failed non-surgical efforts, cosmesis, which is controversial, as well as cardiopulmonary decline. Keep in mind that thoracic curves greater than 60 degrees affect pulmonary function tests, and thoracic curves greater than 90 degrees can cause mortality. With respect to operative techniques, options for operative techniques include a posterior-only curve correction and instrumented fusion, or a combined anterior-posterior curve correction with instrumented fusion. The indications for posterior-only curve correction and instrumented fusion include thoracic curves greater than 50 degrees, 
most double structural curves greater than 50 degrees, and keep in mind that the technique selected is patient and surgeon-specific. A combined anterior-posterior curve correction with instrumented fusion is indicated for isolated thoracolumbar deformities, isolated lumbar curves, and extremely rigid curves requiring an anterior release. Now let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. In general, the goals of surgery include restoring spinal balance, relieving pain, and obtaining a solid fusion. With respect to restoring spinal balance, the sagittal plane balance is the most reliable predictor of clinical symptoms postoperatively. This can be measured by the C7 plumb line, and keep in mind that correction of sagittal plane deformity requires intense preoperative planning. Restoring spinal balance also includes correcting the lumbar lordosis to the normal anatomic range, where the pelvic incidence equals the lumbar lordosis plus or minus 9 degrees. Keep in mind that worse outcomes are associated with baseline depression and or obesity. With respect to selecting the proximal and distal fusion level, with respect to proximal extension, you will extend to a neutral and horizontal vertebra above the main curve, and extending the fusion to L5 is only indicated if there is no pathology at L5-S1. Keep in mind that patients with a normal C7 plumb line and normal sacral inclination have the lowest risk of future L5-S1 disc degeneration. With respect to outcomes, there is a high failure rate if instrumentation does not extend to the sacrum if there is pathology at L5-S1. As far as extending the fusion to the sacrum or S1, the indications to extend to the sacrum is if there is any pathology at L5-S1, including L5-S1 spondylolisthesis, L5-S1 spondylolysis, L5-S1 facet arthrosis, or prior laminectomy. With respect to the technique, this may require concomitant anterior release and anterior column support through an anterior approach for better deformity correction. As far as outcomes, the advantages of extending the fusion to the sacrum is increased stability of a long fusion construct, and constructs are less likely to fail if instrumentation extends to the sacrum. The disadvantages include increased risk of pseudoarthrosis, increased surgical time, increased reoperation rates, increased risk of sacral insufficiency fractures, and altered gait postoperatively. As far as extending the fusion to the ilium, otherwise known as a sacro-pelvic fusion, consider this if the sacrum is included in the fusion involving greater than three levels. As far as the technique, you will use iliac screws or bolts. With respect to outcomes, the advantage of extending the fusion to the ilium is increased stability of a long fusion construct, and it also increases the success of a lumbosacral fusion. The disadvantage of extending the fusion to the ilium is prominent hardware. With respect to cement augmentation, the indications for this is in osteoporotic patients. The technique involves cement injection through a fenestrated tap at the end vertebra followed by pedicle screw insertion. With respect to outcomes, there are increased fusion rates, decreased deformity correction loss, increased screw pullout strength, and no added complications. As far as osteotomies, a general overview is that they are useful to regain sagittal balance in severe angulation deformities. Remember that a 30 degree or more correction can be obtained through a Smith-Peterson or pedicle subtraction osteotomy, and keep in mind that intraoperative neuromonitoring is preferred. A Smith-Peterson osteotomy is indicated for mild to moderate sagittal imbalance, and in those patients requiring correction of up to 10 degrees per level of osteotomy. Prerequisites for this option include no anterior fusion at the level of the osteotomy, and remember that adequate correction requires adequate disc height and mobility, as correction is at the level of the disc. Remember that there's more correction in the lumbar spine as there is greater disc height and mobility, and there's less correction in the thoracic spine as there is lesser disc height and mobility. 
A pedicle subtraction osteotomy is indicated for severe sagittal imbalance of greater than 12 centimeters, patients requiring correction of 30 to 35 degrees in the lumbar spine and 25 degrees in the thoracic spine, and where an anterior fusion is present, as the correction is at the level of the vertebral body and not at the disc. Finally, a vertebral column resection is indicated for severe sagittal balance as it provides more correction than a pedicle subtraction osteotomy. A vertebral column resection is also indicated when the patient requires correction of up to 45 degrees. In patients with rigid angular thoracic spine kyphosis, such as associated with tumor, fracture, or infection, in patients with severe rigid scoliosis, in patients with congenital kyphosis, and in patients where a hemivertebrae resection in the thoracic-slash-lumbar spines is indicated, and when you need to do a hemivertebrae resection in the thoracic-slash-lumbar spines. As far as anterior procedures, the indications include large curves that is greater than 70 degrees, rigid curves where there is no flexibility on the side-bending films, isolated lumbar or thoracolumbar curves, as well as anterior interbody fusions at L5-S1 when fusing to the sacrum. As far as the technique, an anterior release infusion is usually combined with a posterior instrumentation infusion, whether staged or the same day. With respect to outcomes, disadvantages include longer surgeries if performed on the same day, higher complication rates, and it is more medically stressful. The advantages of an anterior procedure is that it increases the stability of L5-S1 long fusion constructs, and it helps restore and maintain sagittal and coronal balance. With respect to surgical complications for adult spinal deformity, there is an overall complication rate of approximately 13.5%. 10% are major complications which often irreversibly affect the long-term health of a patient. The complication rate is significantly higher with osteotomies, revision procedures, and combined anterior-slash-posterior approaches. Finally, venous thromboembolism is most likely to result in poor clinical outcomes following adult spinal deformity surgery. Some specific complications to keep in mind include pseudoarthrosis, dural tear, infection, implant complications, neurologic deficits, epidural hematoma, pulmonary embolus, deep venous thrombosis, and death. With respect to pseudoarthrosis, this has an incidence of approximately 5 to 25%. The most common surgical technique resulting in pseudoarthrosis is posterior-only fusion, in which 15% of cases go on to pseudoarthrosis. The most common locations for pseudoarthrosis include L5-S1 and the thoracolumbar junction. Risk factors for pseudoarthrosis include age greater than 55, kyphosis greater than 20 degrees, positive sagittal balance of greater than 5 centimeters, hip arthritis, smoking, using a thoracoabdominal approach, or an incomplete lumbopelvic fixation. Dural tears occur in approximately 2.9% of patients. With respect to infection, deep wound infections occur approximately 1.5% of the time, superficial wound infections occur in approximately 0.9% of cases, and keep in mind that infection has an increased risk with diabetes, smoking, increasing age, and revision surgery. Implant complications occur in approximately 1.6% of cases. Instrumentation failure is most likely in bone with the lowest ratio of cortical to cancellous bone, and in order of increasing ratio of cortical to cancellous bone, you have the sacrum, then the vertebral bodies, then the lumbar pedicles, then the thoracic pedicles. With respect to neurologic deficits, acute neurologic deficits occur in approximately 1% of cases. It can specifically occur intraoperatively after the deformity correction maneuver, and if identified on neurophysiologic monitoring, you should remove the instrumentation and consider a wake-up test. 
Again, if neurologic deficits are identified on neurophysiologic monitoring, you should remove the instrumentation and consider a wake-up test. Delayed neurologic deficits occur in approximately 0.5% of cases, and acute neurologic deficits following pedicle subtraction osteotomy can occur in 18% of cases, specifically nerve root injury, screw malposition, and or during the corrective maneuver. Epidural hematoma can occur in approximately 0.2% of cases, pulmonary embolus can also occur in approximately 0.2% of cases, deep venous thrombosis can also occur in approximately 0.2% of cases, and death can occur in approximately 0.3% of cases. That's all for this review about adult spinal deformity. Hopefully that was helpful. Because this is a relatively lengthy topic, look out for a separate episode completely dedicated to questions about adult spinal deformity, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that question review session. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.